So the fundamental self-view that afflicts us that we begin to recognize more fully and the effects of it is um, sitting, not doing very much and anything touches the body pains and its movements, uh, silences, simple things like this and how uh, how much conflict and dukkha can come out of such a simple thing, much unsatisfactoriness because of the suddenly when we're in this position, the self view, can't find anything to view. Looking through the window of yourself, there's not all those familiar things, the activity, the, uh, the, the things we belong to, things we can do, things we can uh, lean on, are, are normally held there by our habitual actions in life our relationships, our actions, our activities, many of them quite wholesome, not, not wrong at all. And yet on an ultimate level, they, uh, they, aren't, they, aren't, they are the seeds of unsatisfactoriness just because they uh, are seen as self. And we witness this dramatically in terms of a retreat when the familiarities are swept away or put away we feel confused, we feel a, like our motors are running and there's nothing, nowhere to go like your, your engines are revving up and yet there's no ground to cover and so you feel you get too much energy coursing through the system or you're falling over, falling asleep well, not, not exactly falling asleep, but just unable to, to get, a, to keep track. It's not as if one is sleepy so much, it's just you, the, your mind can't, can't get any contact, your attention can't get contact with, with an object, it just keeps sliding away, drifting. 
and uh, then all this is taken very personally and uh, the only way we can relate to this is by the familiar personality mechanisms of power, effort, struggle, control and uh, and then all the, all the emotional reactions of self-criticism, blaming, blaming oneself, blaming others, blaming Buddhism, blaming everything, <laughs> feeling negative reverse uh, towards oneself, towards the practice. And this sometimes this this so uh, this is a result of the self self view. Self way of, of relating to life, and then it gives rise to all kinds of other views about what one needs and what one should be doing. Views about practice. So sometimes on this retreat, on retreats, you get quite clearly, quite clear ideas about how it should be and what Buddhism really is or what what we really need to do clearly worked out suddenly you know, Greek Orthodox Christianity looks quite attractive or shamanism or Jungian therapy or anything actually or different kinds of different kinds of Buddhism suddenly these things seem blindingly clear as to how much better they are all kinds of elaborate views about what one's going to do with one's life kind of ideas about idyllic scenarios that we could be in instead of being in a drafty old workshop (laughs) with a backache (laughs) which is true it's not Sometimes it's not very difficult to think of something better than this. (laughs) (laughs) In in practice, it's just to to recognize these, to feel what a view feels like. Suddenly, when when there's a view, then the the, the self disappears, as it were. We just see everything seems out, you know. Suddenly, we see things. We we have to view the world as completely external. Mm. It makes a lot of sense. It's ab- abstracted. The future, the past, the present. Suddenly, you know, we don't we don't we don't notice ourselves anymore. We we don't notice the the irritation or the conceit or the despair or the sadness or the dullness you know we don't we don't recognize that the view a view obscures the nature of the viewer we look through the window we don't notice who's looking we look with the eye of greed the eye of delusion the eye of conceit the eye of pride the eye of negativity or of sadness, of loneliness, of loss, of grief. Why doesn't thing work for me? Try so hard, get anywhere, 
looking looking through with that view, sort of grieving, mourning, the loss of our of our expectations, our ideals. One recollects, one knows, one feels out what a view is. You feel out the source of it. And this is not in any way to to be it doesn't doesn't help just by adopting a view about having views. Uh, you shouldn't have a view or you shouldn't, you know, get into this should shouldn't shouldn't experience is a real sign of a view. So when it when it's coming up like that should and shouldn't this is one of the signs of what a view is how to recognize when it's taking over because it's not as if should or shouldn't it's going to do anything apart from create more tension and worry and denial so right now if there's a view we have an opinion an attitude then in practice we can what we're what we're encouraged to do is to at least to acknowledge it feed it out understand it try to understand the source of it the pain that it comes from the frustration you know to get to the heart of these things and to start the the healing process the the accepting process the opening process opening it into one's despair or one's agitation opening into the, basically into the dukkha not to shut it down but to to be compassionate to take that like you would somebody else who's in pain and how you would how you would relate to that how you would hold that closely that person closely to you and you would comfort them and you would you just be there with them, not just giving them answers, not telling them to snap out of it, not telling them they've got too many attachments. And they should be this, and they shouldn't be that. You don't do that to to suffering. You you hold it, and you hold it with a kind of nourishing silence. This is the awareness that has no drives. It's not proving anything, denying anything, preaching, setting things straight. It's an awareness that is like Buddha awareness. Call it like call it this word, if you like, the dispassionate, the one who has no positions, no goals, no aims, presence. A very full here presence, sensitizing, feeling how it is. And this is like it's like a, something that absorbs the jangle of the feelings. Like it, it just it's like some like the space of that awareness that has no drives soaks up all the frantic energies of sadness and suffering. And we begin to realize suffering is something we do. It's not something that is. 
It's something that we do on a subtle psychological level. We hope, we despair. These are things we do. We can stop doing it if we come to this point. If we acknowledge, if we take it back instead of projecting it out. And it happens quite naturally. So this is the, you know, a miracle, if you like, or that that we only come to through the proper acknowledgement and recognition of of dukkha, which we see as either pain or frustration or not getting places or unable to control or not feeling right or things aren't working out whatever this is basic impotence of the self to be acknowledged not in with not in any kind of negative way and then we stop it's it can stop that, that can stop you know how it is And then you know how to practice. At that moment you know how to practice. You wonder how how you forgot. So when it's it's, the dukkha mounts up and generally with this viewing we can always find a reason or something out there to, 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 to pin it on to the way people are relating to me or it's too long or it's too short or we sit too much or we don't sit enough or we do this or do that it's quite reasonable some of these make sense and yet the the dukkha is not it's something you're doing and we hurt ourselves with it we receive the results of that the weather doesn't mind if you if you feel upset by it and blame it. The weather doesn't care. You know, but, but in our own, we care. We have to receive results of that. We get poisoned by it. So you don't need to heap the personal creations of, of dukkha onto this realm where we have to experience degrees of discomfort and things not working according to my plans, my aims. This is what we have to experience. But we don't have to we don't have to make more of it. Certainly in terms of of views then the particular uh, refinement of one kind of view that the Buddha pointed out as being a noted noted hindrance, noted fetter worthy of reflection in its own right is the view about practices, techniques and practices, rites and rituals. The rite and ritual means something that we do with no reference to ourselves, with no reference to how we're doing it or why we're doing it. 
it's like a blind automatic as you see that what a, a rite or a ritual is it's just the belief in the efficacy of an action irrespective of the mind state irrespective of the person who's doing it and we can we can meditate like this also we can practice dharma like this so we you know the variety of dharma practices are there and we can just do them kind of feeling we just plug into this one and do it and then you you know that's it isn't it without the full recollection of but how are you doing it now and why are you doing it now and who's doing it now so as in as in Buddha commented the person who doesn't notice how things how they practice even if they practice in great ardor and diligence and sincerity but they're not noticing the results this is like the cook who doesn't notice whether the master who has cooked the meal for likes the food or not so we can sometimes be like they're just pounding away without recognizing does this does this lead to good results or not and so even if one is quite determined sometimes the determination itself can get in the way where you, you come you know, you're going to shove this food down this down your throat with a you know just get it in there and more and more and more without recognizing whether the, the master likes the food or it makes him sick so we can actually have this way in meditation techniques we can do ourselves a lot of damage with them physical damage, psychological damage and we can then after we've been damaged by them we can feel Buddhism isn't right, it doesn't work for me what a waste of time, it's miserable and go off and do something else in fact we never practiced Buddhism we just practiced our own view of it our own attachment to a, a technique in our own, which covered up the act, the karma drives that we put into it. And admittedly, it's 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 uh, takes it's sometimes acknowledging our karmic drives is one of the most. Uh, challenging experiences because we tend to have a very limited view of what that is in the self view you only see the karma dr- karmic drives that lead towards dukkha you only recognize that self whenever the mind is in this self-view position you know we witness the karma that creates a self we witness the volitional tendencies of of uh, either speculation or indolence or complaining or irregularity erratic jumps and starts and more we witness these things that have become familiar patterns that make up our apparent identity so we see this and sometimes when you begin to review it 
and you recognize it, you feel a, sh- a real shock, a sense of trap, because you can't see any way out of it. You begin to realize how seemingly total your self-view is, how it's affecting everything, how it's affecting the way you walk and stand and sit and breathe. And you're always doing it, things from these these fundamental patterns are being worked out or being exemplified in the way that you practice. So you can sense this sense of deep despair can come up when you see that, you know, that the forcefulness of your nature is, be, is being exactly carried out by the forcefulness of the way you practice meditation. Or the, the, the way we give up, you know, you do something and then, oh, enough of this. Someone who, d- who doesn't have resolution. So that that pattern of behavior whereby when you before you practice meditation you always kind of chopping and changing from this to that and you can never stick with anything and then it begins to manifest in the meditation practice or your thinking time or you really or you get caught up with a lot of sense desire and we begin to see that sometimes it looks like you you know that meditation has been a kind of uh, deceit all along because it's just been another self selfish <laughs> and self orienting exercise so then you know, what you know what can you do actually it's um the, the you have to recognize why we take refuge in the triple gem, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, is, is because of this basic problem, how to get beyond yourself. How can I get beyond myself? So very on a very practical level, just the fact that we are existing as a Sangha, as an assembly, means in some way that that both challenges or frustrates one's self desires and tendencies just kind of the level of conforming and fitting in so we sometimes recognize it as that so that the practice can seem like it's just being chopped having your limbs chopped off having your kind of your personality shaved But also, you must re- recognize that, that it's also, Sangha is actually a very loving experience. You, when you begin to, what you probably recognize after a little while, after you've been through the, the, some of the more negative experiences of it, is actually how accepting and forgiving it is. You know, the people's weaknesses and people's kind of moods and temp- tantrums and getting it wrong and losing the thread and rebellions and all this and, and you know that's part of it people accept it and, and just generally very you know help, try to be as kind and helpful as possible this thing is a very loving place actually it is a refuge like that it doesn't it never kicks people out people tend to leave it because they just can't can't uh, bear themselves anymore <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it is kind of 
forgiveness and the kindness of the Sangha is even more irritating because you know, it makes you feel even more of a heel. <laughs> they're all so nice, and they're so impure. Mm. Which is actually what then one has to, it's really a, an opportunity to just learn to receive, not to think you deserve something. Whether you're good enough to deserve being forgiven or not, whether you're just a creep. But if you aren't good enough, it doesn't matter. Just take it anyway. <laughs> it's not a. It's not this whole sort of I am good enough, therefore I get my rights. What's right for me, I'm not good enough, therefore I get punished. This kind of stupid, pointless attitude that doesn't go anywhere. Good people don't need to be. Uh, praise, do they? It's the bad people who need to be praised. But people are all right. If you're all right, you don't, you know. <laughs> so it's not that, you know, if you really do well, then you're going to get an apple. It's if you do badly, you get an apple. Because <laughs> it's that when it's, that's when you need it. You know, this is a kind of furthering, pragmatic thing, rather than a view of who's the good people and who are the bad people, some abstract posi- position. It's like really compassionate. Like, how this is real urge to, to, to rise up out of the karmic predicament into anything that's possible and allowable to, to help that. Because what often isn't taken into account is the immense good karma that we have. We're, from a self-view we tend to see the negative side of it, but actually we have a tremendous amount of, of good karma. You don't, you don't see it. Because in the self-view you can't see it. If you start to say it like that, it sounds like you're praising your personality, saying, what a good boy am I. But it's not that your personality is so so wonderful. Or, you know, but the karma, you know, what you don't recognize, what's behind yourself, what you can't see through the window, This isn't just the uh, kind of fantasy, but when we just consider how, why we're here, and then you can kind of look at it logically. But really, why? Why were you inspired? Why did you have that interest? Of the thousands of people who hear Dhamma talks, why did you decide that you wanted to go further when 999 other people didn't? How did that happen? Why was that inspiration? Why was that 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 recognition of the need for sense restraint and being able to to pick that up and practice it and work with it? That's this is the this is the karmic treasure that we have, the paramita that we have, all of us. And it's when you can, you know when you consider yourself from the personality point of view, this all this stuff doesn't really make sense. Most of you come from all kinds of places in the world, geographically and um, cosmologically. From heavens and hells and <laughs> hungry ghost realms near and far. How did you know, how did all these hungry ghosts and get here? They must have had something good going for them. As I consider in my own, my own life, you know, I wouldn't have thought 
that I would have been a Buddhist monk, just being kind of average, seemingly average sort of person, was thinking himself as an average person, and then general kind of dissolute teens, and the things that uh, young people do when they get a bit of, of uh, free space, they start going into, generally into dissolution of some kind. <laughs> So I went to that with some some gusto, and uh, so it didn't seem that religious life was really on the cards for me. And then, but then, you know, feeling some kind of interest in travelling to the east, you don't know why, you dismiss it as well. I just feel like doing that, and you don't really investigate these things. But, but I recognise nobody else, not many other people, felt like doing it or able to do it, and then just you know, quite quickly just coming to Thailand, which I hadn't really thought about going to. And then within a few days of coming to Thailand, landing in Thailand, finding a, a meditation monastery. And just, you know, so that within just a few days. And then hearing one talk and deciding to go to a monastery and start practicing meditation. Practicing meditation for a week and then deciding I should become a monk. You know, that's, that's, that's not that normal. Yeah, it all seemed totally normal at the time. I could think, well, I'll just do this for a while. And sounds like a good idea. And yeah, I'll go down there. And might as well do this. And I'll hang in here for a while. And I'll stick around. All very normal, you know. But you think there's something very powerful happening there. Something going on. What is it? And I notice just this, the life is really, you're so conditioned into this personality view that you miss, you don't see, all, one doesn't see all the miracles, all the, you just pass, you just kind of dismiss them as coincidences or a stroke of luck or, well, I just felt like it, you know, and it's not looked at. And I, was, I remember when I was in, in this monastery I was at, I'm the only person who survived that monastery, from that that monastery, the only Westerner who actually st- still survived. And you think, well, you know, you don't really think about it that much. You think, I can't really meditate very well, and you know, I'm not very good, and don't know if I'm really sincere on this path. And yeah, I notice I'm the only one who survived. Even the teacher didn't survive. And then, uh, as I went, the only t- only I only went out of the monastery twice. I was sent out and went up to to Chiang Mai, and then within a few days of arriving in Chiang Mai, in this little meditation monastery, these monks came along and told me to go off and see Ajahn, this American monk who'd arrived in Chiang Mai, Ajahn Sumedho. I didn't want to meet any American monks because I was miserable enough already. I didn't want to meet anybody else, any other miserable person. As I thought, you know, if you, I was miserable after practicing meditation for three months. He'd been practicing for ten years. He must be really miserable. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I don't, you know, I got enough dealing with my own misery. But anyway, they kind of dragged me off these Thai monks to see this American monk, Ajahn Sumedho, and, and I, he was sitting in a, a house, and he said, "I don't know what I'm doing here." So the people just told me to come to this house. I was supposed to give a talk to some people. There isn't anybody here to talk to. Then these Thai monks left, and there was me. He and I, so we just talked to each other for about three hours. 
and he, he didn't know why, why he'd come there, and I didn't know why I'd come there, and there was. And so he talked for about three hours, and I felt a tremendous sense of kind of inspiration, and not just inspiration, but gladness, because this monk wasn't miserable. He was quite happy, relaxed, gentle, friendly, and polite, and, and a pleasant manner. So this is, when you think of it, this is rather extraordinary. So of course, if I was looked at it, if I was somebody who adopted other views, I'd say, you know, well, the God arranged it, or the Buddha was up there making it all work for us, work for it, you know, which probably makes more sense than any other way of expressing <laughs> it, actually, because it seems extremely unlikely just from a what you know coincidences how we we these two of us should get together because he didn't live anywhere near Chiang Mai neither did I I lived down in the center of Thailand he was off in the northeast and Chiang Mai is right up in the north so it's hundreds of miles away from either of our places so we, we somehow ended up in this place together for no real reason and uh, that was a very significant time because he said he was just going to England at that time and so when I went to England, I looked him up and uh, stayed with Ajahn Sumato and I found an extremely beneficial person, uh, exemplar of something that I, you know, of a kind of ease and, and good-humoured warmth and a sense of benevolence. And I didn't, you know, I didn't feel any of those things. I was pretty uptight, miserable and negative. And so it was extremely helpful to have that kind of presence around someone who was, you know, seemed to be a different space. So we look at the, the sum. This is what we mean by the good karma, the, the accumulated good karma of our life. You know, all of us here, we have some some kind of karmic affinities. We all have, no matter what, how wacky or depraved or weird our lifestyle has been, there's something good in it that has brought us to this point where we're actually cultivating meditation, we're living on alms food, we're freely supported, we are able to 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 practice the Dhamma Vinaya, we can hear the teachings, we have all the suttas and the Vinaya here. So, so this is a very excellent occasion and it's only you're only here because of your own goodness. And the self, the self you doesn't allow you to see that. If you even talk about goodness, we start to feel we're being smug. But then, this is where the devotional practices are are. In important because devotion is like a, an opening into something that we can't really we can't conceive of it's not ourself neither ourself nor imaginable by ourself neither mine neither me nor mine not something that my mind can actually see or detect or conceive of or you know we can't project our personality onto it So one of the, you know so that that in devotional practice any the the 
aim is not to to um, you know create images of one's own fashioning, but of a kind of opening into that which is beyond beyond images, beyond expectation, beyond the normal systems of oneself, beyond what one deserves, beyond what one needs, beyond what one thinks, all these which are our own psychological projections and our own ways of measuring life. Devotion is the the movement out towards something that is unreservedly receptive, sensitive, peaceful, accepting. Has no limitations. Doesn't reject anybody. The bad, the stupid, only reject themselves. They don't. They're not rejected by this. Uh, the object of devotion, the, the unconditioned, the, the transcendent, which in our practice we typify, we express in terms of the triple gem. Buddha, the wise, the point of clarity, of dispassion, of seeing, of this wonderful blend of the compassion that can actually witness the pain, the impurities, the hopes, the joys, witness all of it evenly, with no opinion. This, this kind of and this is a very beautiful recollection. The one who knows the worlds, the hell, heaven, hungry ghost realm, animal realm, realm of pride and jealousy, the realms of bliss and happiness, can review it all. The Lokavidu, the knower of the worlds, the pure one, the one who has no no malice, no greed, no favours, no no blaming pure one, the Arahang. And it always that which can always train us as long as we attune to it, as long as we are humble enough and grand enough to open up and receive that blessing. The Buddha is more than teacher, it's also because even teaching we tend to see as information and instruction it goes into the kind of engineering side so we see sometimes even the teaching of the Buddha goes back into our volitional drives and we get how we're going to do it but all Buddha is also just something to see it to just enjoy as an exemplar just that which is presence makes us feel good just like that you know when when we either as a visual image or as a re- heart recollection, the serene one, the joyful one, the sorrowless one, the wise one, it's those, those reflections, you feel good, just like you feel good when you see someone else who is happy, free, joyful, wise, and it, it picks you up. So that there's this recollection of Buddha for its own sake, we're not saying we've got to be like that or how can we get that way or 
you know, anything like that, just, just enjoying it is a, is a lovely experience, which, which means that for that time when we just allow ourselves to enjoy, to trust it the way a, a child trusts the father, then suddenly all this, who am I, what am I going to do, what should I, why am I this way, all that can stop. And we suddenly recognize that's all, that's all a, just a dream. It's all based upon this self-view. And you know, how, how incredibly convincing it is, and how real it is. But then when, when you're out of it, you think, what a nightmare. <laughs> and a desperate nightmare. It's like, you know, those nightmares when you're running and you're running and you're running and you can't, and no matter how fast you run, this big monster's chasing you and it's getting nearer and nearer. Or you, like, you get those nightmares when you're trying to run through treacle or something and you, you know, you're desperately and you can't get anywhere. That's the nightmare, self-view. You know what it feels like. So then when we enjoy Buddha, and then also out of that joy, we, you know, we want to be with that, and we offer ourselves back to it, you know, to to give to give a Buddha, Buddha our love, our respect, just you know, not as a duty, but just as that natural loving of of Buddha. And it's beautiful to feel that, to be able to allow that to happen, to to tune to that. There's suddenly all this desperate fever of self and just be switched off. You think on one level, what's what else is there to do but just to praise the Buddha? What else? If it can be done fully and purely. Or the Dhamma. Dhamma is, is the like the truth of, of of impermanence and change and not be- and anatta, not belonging. And no matter how ha- whatever's happening in our mind, however it is, in Dhamma it changes and doesn't belong. And no matter how furiously the mind says it belongs, it's not going to change, it changes. The emptiness changes the wanting to hold on to bliss and happiness won't work. You know, the getting embedded in moods changes. It doesn't say we don't do it, but it changes. And Dhamma is complete. There's not anything that doesn't do that. Except Dhamma itself doesn't change. It's a, it's a fixed law. So that, that's a really relief tremendous kind of relief blessing to be in you know to to recollect that and to so that dhamma becomes something that you're not just seeing as a as a series of ideas but a being in the presence of this this law this infallible law of change and ownerlessness tremendous relief just to allow oneself to go into that to accept that that means we have to accept that the happiness we have is going to shift and the nice things are going to go or going to move around a bit 
but the beauty of it is that Dhamma, because of just allowing oneself to go into that Dhamma will gradually wean us of this addiction to feelings that is so difficult to break when you've seen them change and come and go this, this law is like the patient teacher who never let you hold a single thing good or bad until eventually you, you, you your systems change in line with that and you find that yeah no, you don't the holding doesn't keep happening this takes time it's like the weaning process takes time but it certainly ben- helps the more often you go back to Dhamma the more you even stop trying to be something hold something push something away and just let it, let it change let it be there even let the waves of despair come up and wash through your mind it's alright sometimes in Dhamma it's better to just stop meditating yeah. can't say this is a kind of classical view <laughs> Because, I mean, when I say stop meditating, I hasten to add, <laughs> stop meditating in the incorrect way. <laughs> and sometimes this means just kind of putting everything down and just being there or going for a walk or just so that you, you know, because actually you, sometimes you just can't, you can't adjust, you just got to, you know, basically stop and go back to the square one and start with very simple things and counting the breath you know, to your, your mala beads and just start moving the beads around your hand noticing one bead, two bead, three bead you know, just holding something and you feel it moving through your fingers it's been very simple like a, like a child, like a baby doesn't know very much because you don't have to know very much it's more like just learning to attune to this, this wonderful Dhamma, this wonderful law. We have to just soften up and, and open to it rather than you know, think it and find it and get it. That of course doesn't mean it, it doesn't that, that doesn't mean that that happens without some application. But I'm just suggesting you know there are different applications. Sangha is this, uh, the realize the trust in the company, the presence of all these beings in the present, the past, the people who've come down this track, uh, confused beings who've become wiser, who've acted nobly, who've poured their blood and their life into this practice to keep it strong and handed on. This is, a, you know, this is a very great thing to recollect our present teachers or teachers in the past or beings who've just ha- exemplified and practiced the way so it's kept clear and it's now in a language that we can understand.
So even if it, you know, with Sangha, with all these things, even if, you know, Buddha is just a, a vague image, and Dhamma is just a kind of a vague notion, and Sangha is just someone who did a little bit of good for you. And you work on those recollections. We chant them every day, and it's like the not delayed in time, that which leads onwards, immediate, revealable within oneself, Dhamma. Now, sometimes these things can seem like they're just um, you know, Buddhist uh, propaganda. Buddhist kind of party line orthodox brainwashing believe in Buddha, believe in Dhamma believe in Sangha do good, offer incense, offer rice to the monks feed them up you know, make donations uh, worship, bow believe and so forth I mean, and then there's that this from the self view where is one of the views that can come up they're all attached to these silly Buddhist rituals, they're all attached to silly old Buddhist conventions, nitwits, not facing up to reality believing in Buddha like you believe in God or Jesus or Allah there's another set of fatuous um, opiate of the masses things keep people kind of subdued and stupid but I can't, must admit, I can't say it's, it, to me it's been something that I just found that easy to do it's not as if it's kind of something that I can all kind of gooey, goo-goo in love with Buddha Dhamma Sangha something that just kind of happened to me immediately and I just use it as a, as a way of avoiding reality <laughs> it's, it's, it's an extremely uh, slow <laughs> maturing process to actually get some readings on these things <laughs> at all so I don't see it in my nature as more cynical and intellectual and devotional and uh, and faith oriented, but it's a recognition because I've certainly seen the limitations and the the hardness and the arrogance and the painfulness of the self view and the drives and the rationale that comes from it, and driven you know and got driven into the corner by it, and we're squashed in the corner with nowhere to go. <laughs> with just yourself and sometimes it's then you 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 reach out something in you reaches out and receives help something in you lets go and you recognize that there always was something vaster with you than your apparent self what's that? Like Ajahn Chah would say, say about but his own practices, he don't don't know. He says, don't be an arahant, don't be a bodhisattva, don't be anything. It's not something you can name. 
or create a, a personal image of, a personal projection onto. It's always, you just use these words, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, as, just, as ways of expressing. But the experience is a movement out of images, out of projections. And so we begin to experience ourself or this, this subject, this one, as beyond that too. Don't know who it is. Don't know who I am. Sometimes it doesn't seem very good. Sometimes it seems different. Sometimes it does things that surprise me. Sometimes it seems you know, blessed. But uh, Ajahn Chah would say, it says, like the tree, like a, a tree, and the birds come and, and sit in it, they know what it is, but the tree doesn't know what it is. You know, the birds that come and sit in it find it to be cool and shady or to have lovely fruit on it. The tree doesn't know what it is at all. It just is that. So there's this gradual losing of any self-image or even the desire to have one, to know what it is this being and when that becomes when we lose that we begin to actually recognize the blessing and the goodness that's present in these beings that tempers our actions So much of it comes uh, frantic efforts come from a basic lack of trust and confidence in our goodness. So we're trying to prove it and make it. Otherwise, we don't feel there is any. But to find a place of devotion, you know, it's just the sense of trust in some of these other humans that are around, these other monks, these nuns. You know, it's just that much. Kind beings, beings who don't kill insects. That's 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 a lovely thing to find. A being who doesn't kill his irritating little insects, who doesn't swear, doesn't hoard things up themselves. I mean, it's just looking like that. That's that's a rather beautiful thing to note and to to be in the presence of. Uh, sometimes in devotion, just kind of you build it up from little things like this, and the devotion is not in terms of like just looking after your bowl, your robes, your kuti, your fellow summoners. So there's that feeling of offering to to sangha in that spirit, and then your heart can be warmed by that, and you recognise that there is that in us which can reach out in a loving and non-self non-self way. And so it it can be just very very pragmatic, very small things can lead us lead us onwards. So then we realise that actually there's a lot more to this than just say a meditation technique. There's the whole field, there's the whole ground of the Buddha Dharma Sangha that we have the opportunity to cultivate in this life. And if you, when you find one road is gets blocked or jammed, don't give up. There are 
thousands of doors you can move through. <laughs> 